king and we want him now we want a king and we want him now we want a king all right here we go welcome back to this episode of civil discourse this is not a safe space it is definitely not a safe space but you know we've been really heavy here lately haven't we we have been heavy and uh you know it's it's not a safe space we got to get into some of the the stuff worth rolling our sleeves up for right i'm with you and i'm gonna roll up my sleeves but i'd like to do something just a little more uh not lightweight. That's not the right word. Just a little something, a little more offbeat. What do you think? Well, I, I was thinking the same thing. And uh, I, I, here we go. You ready? Okay, give it to me. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Charles Frederick Sacris, and I want to welcome you here today. <laughs> yes, and, and I am Mike Koeniger. I am pleased to be here. And before we get too deep in, if you haven't told your friends about us, you really should. You really should. But anyway, <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, this is a, a a project. What is what's the term we use? A, a, a passion project. I think that's what it's called, right? It is, it is a passion project, and we rely on grassroots to get the word out. We so, don't have an advertising it, budget, and I think you're talking to the sponsors here. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, thank you for tuning in. And speaking of passion projects. I uh, we wanted to talk about a shared passion that uh, Dr. Mike and I have, and that is music. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not a way to make a living. In fact, it, it is the definition of how to turn uh, how to make a small fortune, which is start with a large fortune. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I suppose so, it's true. Yes. <laughs> but regardless, first of all, here's an interesting question. And, and people don't think about this, but and I, I read this stat a while ago and I don't remember what it is, but there's actually a statistic out there that at any particular time of the day, if you are engaged with anything that isn't outdoors in the middle of the woods somewhere, there's something like out of 24 hours in your day, 23 of them are with a soundtrack. There's music playing almost everywhere you go, whether it's walking down the street, in the car, uh, you know, at the mall. There's almost always music playing somewhere. And it's so ubiquitous that half the time we don't even notice it. But people, it's easy to forget how omnipresent music is in our lives in every form. Oh, it's it's everywhere. And, and I think we've even chuckled about the fact you walk into uh Trader Joe's and, and you're hearing the hits of the 90s and, and you remember when those songs were, quote, edgy, unquote, and now it's at Trader Joe's or Whole Foods or or any grocery store has music going. Uh, it, it's something. And and you're right. There are times when I'm, I'm sitting there on a sidewalk on a street corner. Where am I hearing this music from? And you realize that the city has put speakers down down the street and so you're getting a soundtrack to walk through the city right <laughs> so i remember uh when i was in school and and i have a degree in music and so you know being a music nerd uh we would joke my friends and i about how cool it would be uh someday for fun to pay a, an upright bass player to walk around behind us going do 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 because you because I'm an, a fellow nerd, I found that quite amusing. So absolutely, I think <laughs> Keith has stepped up to plate, my friends. <laughs> I, I, I think I, it's brilliant. <laughs> I, I think it would be great, you know. And and uh, you know, there, there, it is. Music is a big part of our lives uh, to the point where sometimes we don't stop and just enjoy the silence. You know, we got to do everything with music in our ears. And, and I get it. I get it. I'm right there with everybody else. You know, I, yes, yes, I am old enough that I did carry a boom box when I was a young guy in, in the 80s. Up on your and, shoulder and everything. And and yes, I always wanted my music with me. The thing was, my musical tastes were so offbeat. I'm not sure everyone else around me appreciated it. So, you know, I, for some reason, I don't think they were digging the coal train. But that's another story for another time, isn't it? So it was... Uh, but yes, music music's a big part of my life. Uh, and and as you have, uh, I have performed and, and composed and enjoy music a great deal. And, and, you know, we did kind of touch on this subject a few episodes ago. I had brought up about John Coltrane, probably one of my favorite artists of all time, and, and his response to the uh, church bombings in the South um, and how he had 
gone very dissonant from his previous uh, modal uh, bebop style into into what was classified by a lot of jazz purists at the time as quote noise unquote jazz what you're talking about here is jazz and uh, I think that there's no question the development of jazz uh, in and of itself uh, was extremely important to the development of music rock any number of other uh, history and and we don't want to turn this into a history of music lesson though we easily could and and go down that that gravy train for hours on end right. but for the purposes of this show and and because we talk about you know the cultural and social issues on this show i i really want to take a look at the music that has most shaped our society influenced our society, the musicians and uh, activists that have applied their craft to the influence of society. And this goes back as far as society goes. I mean, the, the earliest artists in every form have done their their work with the idea of influencing their audiences, you know, local and, and, and distant. And music has absolutely been at the forefront of that. Um, one example, which is by no means earth, the earliest of music, but it just pops in my head. Beethoven wrote his third symphony, the Eroica, uh, entirely uh, in, uh, in, by inspiration of what at the time was Napoleon, who prior to declaring himself an emperor, uh, Beethoven was a huge fan of, loved the work he was doing for the people, at least the way it was seen up to that point. And uh, the, the, the efforts that Napoleon was making to reshape the political uh, conversation in Europe um, and structure. And Beethoven wrote this entire symphony, one of the greatest symphonies in our, uh, our literature, to honor that and to promote the heroism, uh, which heroica, that's what that is, uh, heroism, of, of Napoleon. Now, then Napoleon declared himself an emperor. <laughs> and that was a bridge too far. <laughs> and, 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 you know, we can even go a thousand years before that where Gregorian chant becomes the expression of men who were living monastic lives. And the only way they could really express themselves was through chant. Sure. Um, a pre-Gregorian chant even. Uh, and so it also became a voice for those who were literally silent in all other regards. And so uh, this, this tradition of music, whether we're talking about the bards or, or, uh, or the much more formal, uh, what we now call classical, which was the popular music of its day uh, is, is, is really a huge societal influence and is oftentimes informed by politics and, uh, it didn't start in the 60s, folks. I, I'm sorry to tell you. And by the way, jazz is, is an art form that we do need to, to point out was hugely influential. The two best-selling albums, jazz albums of all times, were, were released in the 1960s. It was uh, Blue Train by, by, uh, by Coltrane and then Miles Davis, Kind of Blue. Uh, by the way, Coltrane plays on both of them. Uh, well, well, let's let's go back a little bit further. Now, the roots of jazz, of course, came out of the fields of slavery, and this was the progression uh, of um, not protest songs, but uh, when when they were doing spirituals and and singing in the fields. This was obviously a very different style with African influences to the more uh, Western European style of music that uh, the white uh, population would have been familiar with. And that progressed into, um, and, and you can help me out here with, with, with the terminology, but that progressed into what became, uh, you know, soul, I guess, early period um, bl black music. And, uh, and gradually moved further and further along, becoming more defined and, and more form-based into what we think of as modern jazz. And then within the jazz movement, then we also had separation, straight ahead, swing, bebop, and so forth. Until um, we get to Miles Davis, where things really went a whole other direction with fusion. 
Well, that's a quick overview and and there are no falsehoods there. I I will say what happens though, that I think is really critical is that collision of cultures. And that is where the black spiritual music from the slaves with men and women who can really play collide with Western European sounds and they really synthesize it. Those musicians who are, are the sons and grandsons, and in some cases, freed slaves, then create music that takes what they think is the best of both genres. And the same thing happens as well in the blues, where, where the Delta players are coming up into Chicago, uh, Muddy, Muddy Waters and, and um, Little Walter and those guys. And they're doing the same things in, in the blues that later becomes rock music. So uh, you, you have this influence of uh, Southern Black culture colliding with Western European and, and oftentimes not American Western European, but true Western European culture where the immigrants are mixing their music with the blacks, uh, the sons and daughters of black slaves and creating a whole two, two really whole new art forms uh, in rock music and, and, and modern jazz. Uh, but and, all of it, uh, blues, uh, bluegrass, when we yes. you know dig into that and uh, the spiritual movement, all of it, all of it was born out of the living condition. Of course. And, and, and immigrants and, uh, freed slaves and the sons and daughters of freed slaves being on the lower, lower and bluegrass where it's poor white Southerners, uh, all being on the lower tier of socioeconomic America. Uh, and, you know, when you don't have any other friends, you become friends with each other and you start exchanging ideas. And, and you and I've actually broached on this topic with Elvis, where this is a, a young man who came from nothing. We're talking about a guy who didn't have a pair of shoes till he was 10 and his neighbors uh, didn't look like him. And, uh, did he steal it or did he just grow up hearing it? And, and maybe that's a discussion for another time, but um, this synthesis is happening between these uh, low income socioeconomic groups and really love it or not, regardless of the genre, some really wonderful things really happen. Well, uh, you know, it's again, this idea that uh, socioeconomic circumstances inspired an art form or the development of an art form that was not only inspired by, but the actual form itself was a commentary on that socioeconomic status and and circumstances. So, I mean, the blues was very much born out of the emotional blues that people were living in. And there was a form that they found was the most effective way to express those blues, which is what we think of as the blues today. Well, that form, which we won't get into the numbers and the chord progressions, but that form is still the most popular form of popular music, whether it's blues, jazz, rock uh, or pop to this day, the one, four, five blues. And so it's interesting how, even though obviously modern rock is very far removed from uh, Delta blues era, 19 teens and twenties jazz music, it's all birthed out of the same inspiration in many ways. Oh, it most certainly is. And, and uh, it really took the British artists who came over in the 60s to refocus America's attention on the forebears of rock and roll music uh, being Muddy Waters, Little Walter, those guys I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And there are a whole bunch more. Howlin' Wolf, uh, 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 my brain is just frying here. Uh, Hooker, John Hooker. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these these guys really refocused American eyes on their own homegrown geniuses. Uh, because they were getting the blues records from the sailors who came to the United States, bringing them back to England. Uh, guys would meet the sailors on the ships who would sell them, at a, I'm sure, to profit these records. And so Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin and all those cats are taking this stuff back to their homes. They're sitting around, they're listening to it. And then they're Englishizing, if that's a word, that sound, and then coming back, sometimes to the point where they ended up getting sued later on, by the way. Sure. Uh, so, so, but, you know, this huge influence hits England in the, in the 40s and 50s, and then the English bring it back to the United States and say, oh, look at this great, they didn't say we invented it, but this is what we did with what you sent to us. And and so then you get the Beatles. Uh, well, okay, John, so exactly, John Lennon and, and, and these John, cats. John Lennon, who was a huge Elvis Presley fan. Elvis Presley, of course, comes from, from Memphis, Tennessee, where he grew up hearing the blues. Paul McCartney is a huge Little Richard fan. 
Little Richards, another Southern guy whose roots were in the blues. Uh, all of them were, were James Brown fans. You know, this goes on and on where there, there's just this huge influence in this cross culture and they don't have the prejudices that, that exist in American society to say, I'm not going to listen to, and I'm using the term of the time. It's not one I agree with. I'm not going to listen to that Negro music. They listen to it and they love it. I think so, they had a different term for it actually, but. Well, the English, the English, the English called it Negro. Yes. I'm sure the Americans use a much worse word. <laughs> anyway, so um, enter now we're, so we're, we're now in the fifties and early sixties, right? Yep. yep. Now what's going on in America this time? Well, we have we have the beatneck movement, obviously, from the 50s, which is influencing. And we talked about uh, how it's influencing comedy. Well, we talked about Lenny Bruce and, mm -hmm. and those cats in a previous episode. And it's influencing music. And and so guys like Bob Dylan, who who aren't coming from that blues style, they're coming from the uh, folk music style, which yes. is, by the way, a universal music that is heard throughout the world, not just in Europe and the Americas. Africa has folk music. Asia has folk music. Um and so they're they're coming from the folk music tradition and the folk music tradition has a long history of being the equivalent of the black spiritual, where it is a way for poor whites to talk about their hard times in life. Well, let's let's talk about what folk music is. I mean, quite literally, it is music of the people. So the folk, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the folk uh, who drove in folks wagons. <laughs> but, folk is the German word for people. Yes. So. <laughs> and folk music has been an a source of inspiration for composers and writers. For, again, it, the initial the original music is folk music and, you know, outside of the church. And you had right. there was sacred music and there was secular music and the secular music was folk music. And again, going back to the 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 giants of classical literature classical music composition beethoven mozart a vast number of of their compositions were inspired by and quoting the folk music of their culture uh, and my favorite in that genre in the classical genre who who really just wholesale borrows from the folk tradition in my mind and i hear it all the time is mozart mozart oh, sure obviously was listening to a lot of folk music and it wasn't that he was swiping the riffs he was swiping the sentiment if that makes sense he was taking that folk style and injecting it in his compositions well and in some cases he was literally and, and, and not just him i mean everybody was doing it there's a, there's an sure. old saying amateurs borrow professional steal yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's, he's out stealing it particularly if you're listening to something like the magic flute Absolutely perfect where example. I was just going to say it. Yep. He's lifting, he's lifting wholesale popular music that the troubadours are going around or the street musicians is what we call them now. Right. Yes. And by the way, folks, busking is not a crime. It's an honest profession. But that's another <laughs> subject for another time. <laughs> so take that tradition, fast forward 100, 200 years, whatever it is. And oh, I mean, a thousand years, if we're going to go back to the oldest of chant. And we, again, Add the influence of British pop and, and, and these artists that are coming over and the social political scene, NAM, the post-World War II era, the industrial uh, shifts that were happening in our uh, econo economy uh, for all, the whole wide range of, uh, of, of the American society. You know, even in the black community, there were opportunities starting to show up, even despite the political structure that was not there before. And we start seeing the rise of the Nina Simones, the Bob Dillons, the Joan Baez's, the Pete Seegers. And I mean, I'm giving a very wide swath, but people who are taking that folk tradition, rubbing their particular you know, slant on it, Nina Simone is a great example of that, but all of them are. Yeah. yeah. And completely changing the social discourse uh, in, 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 in the, in, around the dinner table, around in the schoolhouses and, you know, at the church, wherever it was, all of a sudden music, folk music in the form of rock, jazz, pop, whatever you want to call it is having a an impact on our daily society to the point where certain groups of people are calling it a threat. Elvis Presley comes to mind immediately as I say that. He, I was, mean, he was a threat because he was a pretty white boy singing black music. And right? swinging his hips while he was doing it. Right. So emulating those black artists whom he had grown up watching, by the way. Sure. Uh, and 
uh, again, is it stealing? Well, it's what he grew up with. He probably didn't know better at the time uh, because he was not a very well-educated man. I, I hate to tell folks that, but that's just a natural fact. Well, here's the thing. It, you know, he was playing a music that obviously there were plenty of people of color, stylistically at least, who were playing it. Now, Elvis Presley once, he, you know, he was in a position that with the popularity the, uh, that the girls, frankly, were showing for it. It was easier to justify in the corporate side of the music business the support of this white musician, uh, a style which they could otherwise relatively ignore. It's it was a question of access based on the uh, you know the, the the color of his skin. Is that his fault? Not particularly. And the I'm not going to hold that the, against him. <laughs> the more the mores of the time are certainly part of the challenge. The other thing is, while we think he's bringing rock music to America, and, and that is an argument, I, I'm going to make the counter argument. And, and and you've heard we've we've actually you and I've discussed this previously. You have Bing Crosby in the '40s, who's huge, huge. Bing is, I think, to this day, still the best-selling musical artist of all time. Mm. Uh, then he's followed with Sinatra. Yes. They need Sinatra is getting old and Sinatra's moving into the movies. They need a replacement for Sinatra. And this good looking boy from Mississippi who, who ends up in Memphis, Tennessee, but he's originally from Mississippi comes across the river. He's pretty. He's married country music. What What is we now call country music with black music. And I don't particularly like that term, but that is what we're going to call it for this moment. It's really blues. He, he marries country with blues and he's not writing a lot of this stuff, by the way. He has other people writing sure. this for him. Yeah. And they're all from that Memphis area. And, and so he's pretty. He has a, like him or not, he has a great voice. The, the man is was immensely talented vocalist. And he has a good ear for what people his age are going to like. And so he he's thrust on the stage. And I'm going to say this, and it's probably a little far out of left field. He does open the door for Little Richard. And folks who come behind him to be a little more accessible. And the byproduct of that is all of a sudden those segregated clubs in the South, the kids are knocking down the lines between the white section and the black section, and they're dancing together. That has to have an impact on society. Well, and again, re remember what he's, you know, the way he's shaking his hips was nothing new. It was just new to white people in a public forum. Of course, it was it, happening on the Chitlin circuit 20 years before that. Absolutely. And, but people weren't seeing that. You know, the, the, the big producers were not seeing that in the way that, uh, you know, that was something the sinful folk are doing down 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 the road there on the other side of the tracks. All of a sudden, though, here comes this this white boy, so to speak. And he's doing the same thing. And the girls, the white girls, the money to buy these albums are are losing their minds enter uh capitalism we're not going to ignore that i mean there no. were certainly people who were who were not fans of it but oh well <laughs> you know so and then now on the mainstream that kind of performing is starting to become more acceptable it's certainly less ignorable let's call it that Absolutely. And, and so when you say it opens the door for the Little Richards and whatnot, I mean, it's not like Little Richard had only started doing that after Elvis. No, it, no, he was doing it before Elvis. Absolutely. He was, not, he was not able to present it to a predominantly white audience before Elvis. Exactly. And, exactly. And so and same thing with James Brown. Same thing with all these these guys. Uh, Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry released albums long before Elvis uh, on, on I think it was Chess Records out of Chicago. Uh, you know, he, he had releases long before Elvis. Uh, but they, the 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 powers that be in the corporate music world did not see the potential um, for for the money to be made from those artists, because, absolutely. of course, that was just for the black community and there was no money there. All of a sudden, Elvis opens up a floodgate and they go, aha. <laughs> so. well, you know, and there's some there's some interesting stories from that time. And, and some may be apocryphal. One I know for sure that is not apocryphal is Buddy Holly, who's from Lubbock, Texas. Uh, it comes a little later than Elvis. He's a couple, three years later than Elvis. And 
the music industry thinks he's black. And so he gets booked in, um, what's the club in New York with the hook where they pull you off the stage, the Apollo. Oh, the Apollo. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He gets booked in the Apollo. And when he gets to the back door of the Apollo, the, the folks who run the Apollo who are black, look at him and say, you can't play here. And, and they do eventually let him on when they realize who he is. Uh, but they thought he was black. And, and I, th- well, they I did the Elvis that- too. Up until oh, television became a real thing for most people who were still only getting access to music through the radio. A lot of people thought he was a black musician and wondered how he was getting on the air like that. The other thing I, I, I do want to mention is that music in the fifties and sixties and into the, well into the seventies is not, on the radio is not as stratified as it is now. Uh, you know, you didn't have a, a station that played 1970s rock and that's all we play sure. or, or, or whatever. So I was watching a documentary about a Chicago proto-punk band called Death and, and uh, or not Chicago, they were Detroit, a Detroit proto-punk band called Death. And, and what makes Death unique is they were all black musicians from Detroit and they were brothers. And they talk about, how did you get into this style of music in 1972 or three or whatever the date was? And they said, we listened to, uh, it was a station out of Canada because it was CLKW or something like that. We listened to this station every day and you would hear Elvis and then you would hear the Beatles and then you would hear James Brown and then you would hear love. And then you would hear, you know, it was just a series of black and white artists and English and American artists. And, um, you know, you'd hear that Sayonara song from Japan, which was very big. I think, I can't remember if that's the name of the song, but, you know, it was just a real mix of music. So they were exposed to all kinds of music growing up, just listening to the radio in the kitchen while they were eating breakfast, right? So it was... Uh, well, it was it's, real- it's, I mean, that, that I think that reality is reflected across, you know, the, the audio and visual medium. I mean, again, it wasn't until only... 25, 30 years ago, how long has it been that we started having a multitude of channels on the TV as well? Of course, you you had four or five, five if you were lucky, four you were doing good, three was most of America. And so you had these hours, you know, you had the the dance hour or, or whatever program that people tuned in for that period of the day. You know, you, you had the, the soap operas at, you know, between such, uh, you know, one and three or whatever it was. And, you know, in the radio was the same thing. Often there would be classical music for a certain period and then they would move into news and then there would be, you know, like you say, uh, jazz, pop, rock, whatever the particular uh, uh, network and and market was. And that's what you listen to. (laughs) That's what was on. You didn't didn't turn the knob because you might lose the station and never get it back. And I'm not being funny. No, I mean, the were very temperamental back then. And, and to your point, I, I was pretty much a rock kid uh, growing up, though my, my parents were classical music fans. So I was certainly exposed to classical probably before anything. Uh, and then my dad went into that beautiful music scene, but that that's another episode. We won't go too far <laughs> down that road. Uh, but, but, you know, I was a rock guy in my, when I had my own radio, I would listen to my station, but what the rock station I listened to to did on Sunday mornings is they played serious jazz. I'm I'm not talking lightweight pop jazz. I'm talking, uh, that's where I was exposed to Miles Davis. That's where I was exposed to John Coltrane. That's where I was exposed to West Montgomery, you know, and all those other greats that I I still listen to to this day. You know, I I heard the album uh, 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 on the corner by Miles Davis in its entirety the week it was released on that rock station. And, and so you had those moments, even on, on stations that were on the FM side, which was much more um, laser focused on certain genres that you could be exposed to a, a blues evening on Saturday night. They would play the blues on the same station. So, so you could listen to you, you used a term there that I, that I want to unpack a little bit, which was serious jazz. And I think this is worth explaining a little bit because I think a lot of people may not understand what the lineage of that development has been. And it's very interesting. So we said this earlier, classical music was the popular music of its time back, it back in the you know, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. Uh, Franz Liszt, I mean, doesn't get more classical than that, was a rock star. 
Of course. I mean, literal audiences with women as if Elvis was on the stage were throwing their undergarments at him. He was a rock star. And Wagner, (laughs) Wagner, in spite of his racist uh, stuff, which you and I agree is not something we admire, Wagner was heavy metal. He he was like the on the fringe guy. Unique stuff musically. An opera, an opera, when when something happened a certain way, I mean, people would storm the stage. They would demand uh, play that again. It could be a symphony even. There were times where I think uh, it may have been the Eroica. I'm suddenly forgetting now. But one of Beethoven's symphonies, when it first aired, and this also happened um, in the New World Symphony uh, more recently, you know, uh, early 20th century, um, a movement would be so affecting to an audience that they would absolutely demand that they play it again. You could not go on. The, the, there, there would be almost threats coming from the, you no, know, play that again. And people lost their minds. It was a rock show. And, and there was that level of popularity. Now, move forward into the early 20th century. And we start getting these other disparate styles, blues and, and, and jazz and things we've talked about. Now, early jazz, uh, whether it was Dixieland or whatever the case was, was something that you could dance to. And I forget who it was that said this. I remember it from years ago, probably when I was in school. But the statement was that popular music has always gone the way of, of a style that you could dance to. Right. Right. Okay. And so early Beatles, early Beatles, you can dance to later Beatles. When they get serious, you can't dance to it. Well, you go can't back, dance go back another, go back another 20, 30 years before the Beatles. Even when you're in the era of big bands, jazz, which Louis was Armstrong. known as Absolutely. swing. Okay. Yes. You could dance. We, and it was called swing dancing. So if you went to right. the dance clubs, that's what they were playing. It was jazz music. That was the popular stuff, the, the jitterbug and stuff of this, this era. Th- then we get into, again, that, that starts to boil down to a little bit finer and a little bit finer. And we start seeing jazz break into bebop, where about exactly the same time the rock and roll was coming onto the scene and artists like Elvis and Buddy Holly and so forth were who were doing the rock and roll that you could dance to were going in one direction where jazz which used to be the music you danced to was starting to go into the way of the more esoteric intellectual bop and what you just called serious music and so the popularity of jazz started to wane and become more specialized for specific audiences who really understood it and, and could, you know, sit there and intellectualize and dig it, as the term might be. Whereas the young kids were going the way now with rock and roll because you could dance to the rock and roll. We go back into the 30s and you have uh, Thelonious Monk hits the scene with Charlie Parker and Dizzy and, Gillespie and Dizzy Gillespie. And they're kind of all in the same they're, they move in and out of each other's bands. Let's yes. be really honest. Yeah. They're all moving in and out. And this goes on in jazz forever. I think it's still going on to this day. But they're not playing for dance. They are playing uh, for what they're observing in life. And and it's not lyrical. They're trying it's, to say something. It's not about entertainment are, they, anymore. They it's, yeah. And, it, and it's a, actually a matter of serendipity. So you have a class of... Uh, folks in New York City predominantly, but other cities, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, I'm sure, other cities have the same, where they have money and they become patrons of jazz. And yes, they're largely Jewish. Uh, and, and that's just not, that's not me pointing out anything other than a fact. And, and anytime you study the history of jazz, jazz is funded by Jewish patrons and, and has been for decades. And so these guys are, are sitting in front of predominantly white audiences in clubs in New York City, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, um, up and down the East Coast, uh, Northeast, particularly, probably stopping in D.C., but heading all the way up through Boston and those cities. And they're playing for predominantly white audiences and they're playing music that um, 
is probably getting played on a Saturday afternoon for black audiences. So, so these musicians. Well, I think it's worth it's worth pointing out. So you had two musicians that broke the color barrier in in the clubs of New York and and whatnot. I mean, obviously they were playing in the Chitlin Circuit side of things down south, but they were able to get into the white establishments where no one else was. The first, probably in no particular order, but uh, the two that to me are, are at the top of that line were Duke Ellington. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and Louis Armstrong. Absolutely. And Louis does it through personal charm. Let's be well, real Well, he also, I mean, and again, you know, we're probably going deeper than, than most people want to hear about. Louis brought... Uh, not only live performance on the entertainment side, but uh, music, uh, music virtuosity. Most people think of Louis as a singer today. You know, what a wonderful world. <laughs> Louis took trumpet playing to a place that it had never been before. An absolutely amazing trumpet player. And, and uh, to, to, dis to, to disregard his abilities as a musician is as big as a disservice as when we only think of Quincy Jones as a producer. Another amazing, uh, absolutely amazing musician. And so. trumpet player, ironically enough. But yes. Beethoven was credited with taking us out of the classic period of music and moving us into the romantic period of music. Louis Armstrong single-handedly brought us out of the Dixieland style and stomp and so forth into what we think of as modern jazz. Single-handedly. Um, because and he pulls, and pulls the white big bands right there with him. He Absolutely. takes them right along with him. They follow him into the genre. So you don't just have black musicians at this point. You have Dave Brubeck out there and you have. Uh, well, Dave Brubeck came down the line a little bit. I mean, not not that does. far down the line, but he was definitely born out of out of the the new realm of jazz music that. I'm sorry. I, I consider Louis Armstrong the grandfather of of modern jazz. He in the sense, he and Duke Ellington are absolutely the 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 fathers and grandfathers of modern jazz. And Duke does not. Duke Ellington doesn't get the credit he deserves because he died at such a young age. Uh, well, he was so he was Ellington was born in 1899. He died in 1974. So he wasn't that young. I mean, by by those when you consider the kind of life these guys were leading. I, I don't disagree, <laughs> except that jazz. Rock, it starts to explode in the late 60s, really. And he is already. Um, yes. Yeah. No, he's starting to slow down. Absolutely. Uh, and, and of course, Miles Davis has most of his biggest successes uh, outside of Kind of Blue happened in the 70s with uh, Bitches Brew and On the Corner and, and Jack Johnson and those albums that all come out. Well, so and, so here we are with uh, Armstrong and Ellington bringing jazz music into the mainstream in a, in a whole new way. And and still in the era of swing, where it was the popular music, people were dancing to it. You know, there there was it was in the dance clubs and Ellington, it's worth calling out, got a lot of noise from the black community because he was able to play in the Cotton Club. He was able to play in exclusively white clubs that didn't allow black people in. And he continued to do it. He did not say no. Because he felt he was creating an opportunity for black musicians to to be taken seriously, and that was worth whatever needed to happen to open those doors. And I think there was some legitimacy to be given to that. Born from those two guys come the Charlie Parkers, the Dizzy Gillespies, the Monks, the people who start taking around the same time that rock is becoming mainstream, jazz into a more serious intellectual pursuit where we're, we're actually saying something, not just entertaining. And, and like we said, rock and roll is in the time of Elvis is starting to go into the real mainstream entertainment. And the young people are going with that because they can dance with it. And then we start breaking into the Miles Davis era, which is, I think, really where stuff starts going off in, in a whole new social statement direction. Would you disagree? No, I, I don't disagree at all. There's another factor, though, that we haven't mentioned. Okay. And that factor is military enlistments where there was an active draft and a lot of young black musicians uh, knew it was coming their way and wanted to do it on their own terms. And so they joined the military and ended up in military bands. And so while uh, mainline, mainstream America is still very segregated in the 40s, 
Uh, the military musicians are not. They, they may be segregated during the day, but in the evenings, they're all gathering together in some room, some band room on some military base, and they're all playing together. And, and this is addressed a lot in cult, a lot of Coltrane's bio, biographical uh, work, if you read his biographies, where during the day, the black band went here, the white band went there at night, they got together and they all jammed. And, and if you listen to pre-military service Coltrane and you listen to post-military service Coltrane, <laughs> he learned a lot in those th- sure. two or three years in sure. the military. And he's not the only one. I, I pick on him because he's one of my favorites. But uh, this this is happening where the military is integrated by uh, Truman. And so they're not, now musicians are able to play together. They couldn't play together in the rest of America. And so um, that's how you end up with Brubeck playing in a mostly uh, a band that doesn't look like he, he does. Right. Or, or uh, Wes, uh, um, Vince Guaraldi or, sure. or, or any of the cats. Sure. And they're playing, they're playing across. I'm trying to remember Miles Davis's piano player. It's escaping my mind at the moment, but you know, these guys are all playing with each other because that was tradition from where they got their, they learned their chops. And so this is a huge impact. And so, well, There's it was about social- that time. Forgive me for interrupting, but oh no, you're fine. <laughs> I, I so you, we're talking about integration, okay? And while that's happening on the the heels of the war, right? Right. We're also now starting to get into the heightened level of this the civil rights movement, really starting to to gain steam. And back in the states, okay, we start now again. We talked about the church bombings. And some of the the really horrible things that uh, not only had been going on, but were starting to become more elevated as things were, were were really heating up. And the musicians, you know, all the artists in general, but for, we're talking about music today, are starting to reflect in a much more purposeful and aggressive way, frankly. Uh, the their statements that in, in on social culture and and politics and so forth, we're starting to see music being written and performed specifically to that end. Uh, one example uh, that comes to mind: Billie Holiday uh, had a very famous song called "Strange Fruit." Strange Fruit. Yep. And yep. It, it, of course, was about the lynchings that were going on in the South. And uh, you had mentioned a couple of different uh, people that had, had written it in response to the uh, the church bombings in um, Alabama. Well, well, Coltrane does. Yes. And then, of course, Miles Davis yeah. uh, takes a little bit different path where instead of uh, his, his form of protest is much more subtle, though Miles was very in your face. Uh, 1970, he records Jack Johnson. Uh, with an integrated band, including Bill Evans, by the way, who was the guy I was trying to remember a few moments ago. Mm-hmm. And and while it's not, quote, protest music, I think idolizing a black boxer who did it on his own terms in a very white America, a very racist America in the 20s, and was the heavyweight champion of the world, that's sure. a huge statement. That's a huge statement. And by the way, it, it's now you're getting guys like John Lennon writing about this in rock music, and, and he's taking a strident a stance, or um, the Buffalo Springfield. Uh, Pete Seeger, uh, uh, yeah. Woody Guthrie, I mean, uh, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, of course, and, you know, Harry Belafonte. Led and Bailey. it goes right down the line into yeah, popular music. Now, now I'm sitting, you know, you're sitting in your car with your very middle class uh, white parents, and you're all singing, uh, someday a change will come, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, because, hey, she's a great singer. <laughs> so, well, she- you know, and, and the music is there and, and it is, it's in your face and the lyrics aren't that hard to interpret. And so young folks are hearing what's being said. Um, older folks are liking the music because it's very accessible and there is a social change that's happening. And all of a sudden, you know, I don't care who you were or you could have been the biggest racist in the world. How could you not like Louis Armstrong? He was just so charming. You well, know? it's amazing how people manage to justify their bigotry. But <laughs> we... well, the point being is there were some guys who just transcended that. And he's one of them for sure. He's one of them who just transcends it. I mean, he was well, now doing... it's, it's worth saying when you talk about Louis Armstrong, he got a lot of flack and still does in certain circles because he was willing to what for some people and especially in the black community at the time who were serious 
you know, what was were termed race guy men, you know, they, they were serious about this and what they were not going to do was the step and fetch it, smile and grin and, and, and do the, the cakewalk uh, to get it. And a lot of people saw what Louis Armstrong, the way he presented as being that a great example of this. And, and I know he doesn't feel this way, but he talks about this in a number of inter- interviews is when uh, Wynton Marsalis, who's, Today, you know, he is the Louis Armstrong of today in the jazz community. Um, He talks about when he was young and not as versed in the history and understanding the nuance of all of it as as he is today. Um, His dad, uh, who was also an extraordinary musician and music educator um, and activist, uh, suggesting that for his own musical development, he go and work on some of Louis Armstrong's material, uh, pops, as people called Armstrong. And Marsalis said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to play any of that, you know, step and fetch music, you know, sitting there smiling and grinning. What a wonderful world and all this other nonsense. And Ellis is uh, 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 Marsalis, Louis, uh, Winton's dad, tripping over my words here. Um, said, yeah, take this one solo right here and I want you to learn that solo. Bring it back at the end of the week. (laughs) We're talking about a trumpet solo here in a a jazz piece. And Winton goes in in woodsheds, which for those of you who aren't musicians, means studies and practices the, uh, the piece. And he comes back and he can't play it. I mean, he's, he's just, oh my God had no idea the level of musicianship that was actually going on there because he made it sound so easy. Armstrong did that. Uh, people say, you know, he's not, a, he's, he's just an entertainer. He just sings and dances and makes the white oh, folks happy. Yeah. Oh, how, little you, how little, you know, right? Well, all of a sudden he, uh, the light went on and said, wait, there's something much different going on here than I understood. And, and that's really what opened up Marla Salas's eyes to, the much deeper depths of, uh, of of musicianship and skill and talent that was going on there. And then you start to see, you know, really what was behind a lot of, of what otherwise looked like very surface level musicianship. Um, but the thing I want to get into, because I, you know, before we run out of time, I want to talk about the music with this show, with Civil Discourse, which of course comes from your band. And my feeling is, and I've given you my opinions of your album, I think it's great. And it's not necessarily music that I would go to the store and buy because, you know, it's not the style of stuff that I have otherwise traditionally listened to. But the importance of it, once you do allow yourself to take the time and listen, I think is there's a lot being said there in the tradition of a of these musicians, these folk artists of, of the social movements of, of the past, especially in the American sense that your group has, has brought forward. And a couple of people have asked me, you know, that, that opening song, we want a King. What is that about? What, why <laughs> is that the opening of your show? What's what, what's going on there? And I, I wanted to give us some space here to discuss, you know, in our own way, how we've been influenced, how you've been influenced by these artists we hold in such uh, reverie, uh, how that tradition of making a statement in our through our music to support whatever our values are, how we are doing that in, in this show and, and, and carrying that tradition forward. So... I, I, and I appreciate it. And, and uh, you listen to my album, you're not going to hear John Coltrane, uh, though he's a huge influence on me. And you know, we, we, you've, you've heard me wax poetic for hours, literally on, on the wonderfulness of Coltrane or Miles Davis. I, I have over a hundred albums from each of those two artists, by the way, mm-hmm. that I purchased, purchased. Um, and I, so I'm a huge fan of both of them. I'm a huge fan of, of Parker. I have probably 20 albums from Parker and, and I have, all the Beatles catalog. I, I have all the Led Zeppelin catalog. My tastes are very eclectic. And I think the album reflects that uh, to some degree. Uh, there are madrigal, there is a madrigal on it, uh, which is very much influenced by our classical backgrounds. Uh, Remind both, people the name of the album. The The album is called Open Letters. Uh, the group is called the Lazarus Trio, but it's a duo. 
we can't count. Um, <laughs> Uh, but and, and the two my my musical partner on that is Carl Groves and Carl is a Belmont trained uh musician Belmont I think is mostly known for country music but they also have all genres go there uh like Juilliard or uh Berkeley uh, you know they're known for one thing but they do other things as well and, and Carl is a a pianist and uh guitar player and very very accomplished guitar player uh very accomplished vocalist and he and I compose together. Um, they really are. And, you know, the interpretations of the song are always up to the listener, but there is the self-indulgent piece where I wrote music for me and Carl wrote music for him and, and we bounced it off each other and it became for us. And in the end, if I don't like something, you're not going to get to hear it because I don't like it. And there are songs, by the way, yeah, which I've never shared with you even, that are in the can that aren't going to be released because they just didn't uh, meet my criteria for something I want my name attached to. Um, so that's um, ladies and gentlemen, that's code for, he thought it sucked. <laughs> it, it, it did. But, but the, the track you hear, the track you hear on this song, uh, on this podcast specifically is called oligarchy. And, and um, it, it was inspired by uh this this constant historical through the ages. Wait a minute. I'm going to uh, pause you. I'm going to pause you. Let's okay. add some suspense to this because I was asked, what does it mean? <laughs> and so it means what you want it to mean. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to right here and right now give my interpretation of that song. And yeah, then the please. guy who wrote it is going to say whether I'm full of it or not. <laughs> well, no, you, and my point is you're not full of it because however you interpret it. It's yours. You own it, right? Once you hear it, it's in your head. You so own that idea. The primary <laughs> lyric that opens the song and, and repeats through it is, we want a king and we want him now. Okay. And then I, it goes through various iterations of what it is that we want and, 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 and why we want it. We, quote unquote. And the, the through line is to make the decisions for us. We want right. to follow. And so my answer to one of our listeners who, who reached out and asked the question, what is it, you know, what's, what does that have to do with your show? And, and, and I'm going to paraphrase my own answer here. Um, but essentially I said, my feeling is that we are trying to encourage people to not only think for themselves in this show, but to be open to the thoughts of others and, and hearing mm -hmm. them and taking them into consideration and being affected, not influenced, but affected by where other people are coming from in a thoughtful way. That's what our show's about. If I'm going to narrow it down to one quick little blurb to me, the, the antithesis of that is I don't want to think, I want you to tell me what to think. I want you to tell me what to do. And History has shown in human, in nature, from the very beginning, time and time again, that type of mentality. We want a king to tell us, to take care of us, to keep us safe, to remove any thought and concern. We want someone to come in and lead us so that we don't have to do, take the responsibility of it on ourselves, which is not what this show is, is for. So... To me, that's the idea of that song and why it is a great way to start uh, our program, Civil Discourse, by basically, you know, celebrating, if you want to, the antithesis of why we're here, which is that we want, we want to think and we want to think now is the, the alternative to we want a king and we want a king now. Am I wrong? <laughs> As I said, it's your interpretation. You can't be wrong. Um, you're, you're, no, no. You're supposed to say right on. That was exactly what I was thinking when I wrote well, it. Well, <laughs> no. It, it's 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 a it's a a very you see. I, and I always hate to put, let the cat out of the bag because I love that interpretation. I'm sitting there going, why couldn't I have written it for that reason? It's a great reason to have written it. Uh, it, it but there is there's a lot of it. I, I think it, it aligns very much with what the intent was. And and I think predominantly those those lyrics are, are mine. I think predominantly the music is Carl's. Uh, if I remember right, I 
I'm sorry, I can't remember how the line splits. So Carl, if I've insulted you, I apologize. Uh, we'll have him on the show. He can say you straight. <laughs> he could. Uh, I know I wrote uh, the bulk of it. There is a middle bridge I know for a fact Carl wrote, uh, which I sing, by the way. Uh, so anyway, uh, we we when I wrote it, I had read, I was doing some study on on pre uh, pre uh, AD government styles and and I got into the book of Kings and and there's in the Bible and there's this part where they don't have a King. The Israelites don't have a King. They have a series of prophets that lead them and and priests, a priestly class that leads them. They don't have Kings and they don't pay taxes. And the person who, who runs their, 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 their towns are the senior elders of those towns, men and women, by the way, in in Jewish uh, culture. And they demand a King and, and, the prophets come back and say, you know, if you get a king, he's going to take a tenth of everything you own. He's going to have your sons run in front of him in chariots. He does this. He does that. You really don't want a king. And and the Israelites come back and say, we want a king. And, and no, you really don't want a king because if you get a king, he's going to do this. He's going to do that. No, we want a king. And so the prophets go back to God and say they want a king. And God says, well, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And, and so that was the initial story that built on it. And then I big, big, big shock. I'm a history, I was a history teacher. So I look at that story through the lens of history and we all like to think how evolved we are. We, we weren't like those people back then. And I, I, I remember turning to Carl and saying, we haven't changed in 6,000 years. We haven't changed one iota. We still want a King. We think this president or that president is going to be our savior or this, this congressman or this governor. Or, oh, gee, it's going to be a red wave. We're in power. Everything's going to change. Oh, gee, it's a blue wave. We're in power. Everything's going to be better. It never gets better, does it? It really doesn't. And and, and if you're waiting for your savior to come through your vote or through a coronation of a king or or because Napoleon declared himself emperor and Wyatt, Wyatt has some opinions here, mm-hmm. uh, it ain't happening. And that's the message of the song. So, is that what you, that's pretty close to what you said. I really wasn't copping out. <laughs> no, so. I, I think, I think it's true. And I, I'm glad why it's in agreement with us on, on the, uh, the idea, but I think a number of the tracks on the album really, uh, are quite affecting and, uh, you know, people can have their different tastes in the style of the music and this, that, and the other, but it was really the words that, that I thought were really interesting. So in addition to, you know, having a vehicle to promote your album with our own show here, I, if all our listeners listeners buy it, I've done okay for this week. (laughs) So uh, it's, 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 and you're right. And it changes stylistically, which means it's never going to sell well. You know, you can listen to one track and then in the middle of it, there's a madrigal slow piano guitar piece, uh, which is sung about how much we love our wives and and what it means to be a husband and a father and, and uh, that willingness to lay down your life for your family uh, in that partnership, you know, and and we believe it's a partnership. Um, uh, It went back, by the way, that one went back to this idea I had that if you put your wife on a high enough pedestal, and honored her to the way you should, uh, she became untouchable for other men, which I hope is pretty deep. I thought it was. <laughs> anyway, Amen. Uh, that's deep. <laughs> so, yes, yes, yes. I grew up in the 70s, so you're going to hear me say deep. Whoa, right on. man. <laughs> but, uh, you know. Yeah, that's and, all right. So, I'm gonna, I know your wife. I, I happen to be familiar with her. I'm going to ask her if uh, she feels you've put her up on that pedestal properly or not. Well, you know, it only took me uh, uh, five years to get her to actually sit down and listen to that song because she, because she didn't want to hear it. Uh, well, there you go. So, you go. yeah, it, it was it was. Uh, but, you know, it, and it's honest. It's honest. There, there's a little theology mixed in there. Uh, there's some um, moaning and groaning about uh, the modernization of holidays like Mother's Day and Father's Day and, and how they should really be about family and and not the sale on the sidewalk there there there's a track i i'm really proud of that i think has held up really well since we recorded called legacy that's about the world war ii generation dying off mm-hmm. and and what they left behind uh, i mean you want to talk about integration it was the world war ii generation that made that happen be honest that's who did it those guys came back from the war and said if that guy could stand by me and get shot at in the battlefield why the heck can't he have the same rights i have and eat at the same lunch counter i eat at and those black veterans came back and said, if I could fight for my country, why can't I be treated like a full, a, a full man? 
And that's what changed the world. I, I love music, but that song was about that generation. They're called the greatest generation for a reason. So sorry. And, I, no, I got really I, 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 I think that I think that that sums it up nicely. And um I mean, obviously there's a lot we could unpack right there, which is a whole nother episode, but um I think, you know, I'll, I'll put this out here because I think it's a great song to open our show as we've been doing. And, and through the course of this season, I'd like to keep it. But uh, I might propose that, you know, in season two and as we move forward, we might, uh, as this show progresses and develops, we might uh, progress and develop the music that we uh, we use to represent the show. Um, you know, whether it's a different track from that album or, or something else that we feel, you know, encompasses the, the character of, of this program as, as it develops. And it could be interesting what might inspire us going forward. But I'm really grateful that, uh, that we're able to, to, to use your music for this. And uh, I hope our listeners are enjoying it and tell them where they can go get the album if they want to check it out more. LazarusTrio.com is the website. If you reach out to me there, uh, I will I will be happy to sell you a hard copy. If you're a person who likes downloading uh, music, uh, Bandcamp, uh, it's available for a pretty nominal fee on a site called Bandcamp.com. Look for the Lazarus Trio. Uh, I, I, and you can actually order the physical CD as well, but a lot of people don't. But I, I'd appreciate it, it if you did support it. And by the way, just to let a little cat out of the bag, we are writing new music. And I've asked a certain person named Charles if he'd be willing to play on it. And you can hear Wyatt wants you to play it. Yeah, he's the backup singer of, of the group. <laughs> no, I, I, and by the way, I do think that is the one thing we bring to music is our ability to harmonize. I, I, I really enjoyed that part of the album. When I listen to it now, I can hear all the other bad things I don't like. But I love the harmonies on that album. Well, we just need, you know, for some people it's cowbell. For us, it needs to be Wyatt, I think. Um, that's the way to yeah, go. Yeah, more, more Wyatt. More no, Wyatt. Thank you. <laughs> so I think, I think we've, you know, we could probably go on for hours and hours, but we really need to end this episode. We're, we're pushing up well over, our, right up on an hour, if not over. Well, so. I, I hope we've, we've kept people's attention. This, this obviously, like I said, it's, it's, a, it's a passion thing for both of us. We come from different traditions in music. But uh, I think that it's one of the things you and I have connected on and, and many an evening has and will yet be spent with a brandy and a record and an album uh, sitting in front of the, the stereo and waxing poetic about uh, Coltrane or, or who knows what. Um, and uh, listen, if you would like to wax uh, poetic and share your, your musings with us, please uh, go to Civil Discourse TNSS, that's this is not a safe space at gmail.com and send us your thoughts. Uh, we want to hear from you. What music has really affected you? Uh, are you a musician? Are you an audience? We need both. Um, what is it that has really resonated for you in the world of folk and, and, and political and social movement based music? And or hasn't it? And are you interested in learning more? And and uh, tell us your thoughts. We want to hear from you. So please, uh, civil discourse tnss at gmail.com. Any other last closing thoughts, Mike? If you want that hip hop episode, you have to ask for it. Uh, I'll be happy to do it, but I got to catch Charles up on hip hop. So, mm. <laughs> anyway, no, uh, I, I really appreciate this. And, and we did definitely nerd out and we got stuck in, in the 60s, but I think that was an important era to get stuck in, which I'm more than happy to do. I want to thank you for this conversation. Again, it's always a blast. Why you say we come from different traditions, we do have a lot of the same oh, passions, yeah. basically, uh, particularly in the world of jazz and classical. Uh, though I'm more of a Russian classical uh, as opposed to a German, even though I'm of German heritage. Um, but yes, and I want to thank you. And I, again, I want to thank Keith for, for sitting at the desk and uh, dealing with the troubles of us being remote from one another and uh, I'm trying to make sense out of two different recordings. Not for long. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be in studio together. So uh, hold on, that'll, that'll hold on to your easy. seats, folks. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I know you have a list of folks to thank. And, and by the way, you need to send me that list, please, as soon as you can. And, <laughs> I will. And, and I will thank them in the next episode because you're not going to be here. I hear you're taking a break. Yeah, I have to, to be away for some, some personal time, but I'll be back. And uh, I think you and Keith are going to talk about some, some heavy stuff 
some heavy stuff. We are. We are. We are. So. Like this wasn't heavy and it was supposed to be a fun episode. I, I had fun. I had fun. Listen, uh, I want to thank uh, Sacred Heart University and the School of Communication and the Arts, Dr. Jim Castingay, our illustrious producer, Keith Zadroyevi, the, uh, the great, the powerful, the mighty Dr. Mike Koniger, my co-host. Uh, and of course, uh, Carl Groves, Mike, and the Lazarus Trio. I'm Charles Frederick Sacrese. I want to thank you guys for uh, joining us uh, for this episode. And please uh, like, share, send, send up a flare, wear the T-shirt. We we need to design a T-shirt. We need to get it out there. Five, five star reviews. Read those five star <laughs> reviews. Tell us how terrible we are in your five star review. All right, folks. Till next time. Be well and be nice to each other. Thank you. Surrender